The Gospel reading is from Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out for fit to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. We are psychosomatic creatures, and what is going on in our heads, what we're feeding our brains, what is coming up in our Facebook feeds and so forth. I'm dating myself apparently with Facebook. I hear that's not something people are using anymore. Um, They've moved on, my kids tell me. Um, But what we are reading, what we are taking in, and how it creates anxiety shows up in our bodies. And we live in a troubling world, in a troubling time, and we've seen, and this is documented, a spike in generalized anxiety over the last two years. And this isn't just because of the election that happened in 2016. This has been bubbling up and percolating under the surface uh, surface for quite some time. And the political process, political fundraising, runs on that anxiety. It's fueled by that anxiety. And every two years, we get either the same group of people or at least a few new people that are giving us similar promises about how electing them is going to really change things. And yet, a year or two later, we realize that those same promises need to be made again because the fundamental issues of injustice and unhealth embedded in our system haven't changed 
They haven't been addressed. We live in the richest nation in the history of the world, and yet even middle-class people can be bankrupt by uh, a disease, bankrupt by medical expenses. We have people that are stuck in this church between making too much in order to receive social assistance, but not enough to live in a place like Portland. And we see so much wealth coming into desirable places like Portland that is pushing people out to the edges of the city where social services are, are less, more few, and harder to access. And we see politicians that are sort of beholden to the donor class, and they're using class and racial resentment to stoke the energy of their base. And this happens again and again and again. And maybe we're just paying more attention this time around. But it causes me, I think it probably causes you to wonder, are we bound to repeat these cycles over and over and over? And so maybe when we read something like what Mark tells us, we hear it from a place of cynicism. We hear it from a place maybe of just exhaustion. Nothing is going to change. And when we read something like what Mark writes, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Maybe we just shrug. It's just one more voice in the cacophony of voices that are invading our headspace. It's a nice sentiment, maybe, but tomorrow I've got to go back to work in the so-called real world. Or maybe we listen because Jesus is giving us some very helpful spiritual insights. Maybe he's giving us some moral guidelines for life in a very difficult world. He's helping us to hold on. Maybe that's when we hear lyrics like we started to look at last week of the Sex Pistols. Johnny Rotten says, I am an antichrist. I am an anarchist. Maybe that's why people listen, because it feels different. It sounds different. It sounds more visceral. It may not be that sophisticated, but it's unconventional. It's something different. Maybe it's a little idealistic. Maybe it's a little self-important to call someone, call yourself an antichrist. But as Walter from Big Lebowski might say, whatever you think of them, at least it's an ethos. At least it's different. At least they believe in what they're doing. And last week we used some good old-fashioned exegesis, some spade work in the Bible to try and reorient ourselves to this text and looked at a couple of words that we needed to pick the locks on, so to speak, that we needed to uncover again what they meant then because they have become so kind of encrusted with our Christian cultural understanding that maybe we've lost sight of what Mark is actually doing and how radical he is that people would say of him and the disciples, well, I don't know what you think of them, but at least they have an ethos. At least they care. They are radical in their commitment. And I want to show you, hopefully, what Mark is laying out is certainly not less than a revolutionary spirituality that opens up a new pathway to God and that we need access through Jesus. 
But it's so much more. And the gospel of Jesus that Mark is announcing here is speaking to tangible, structural, material things. Yes, political concerns. He's speaking to the very ground that we live on in our, into our everyday lives. And we looked at three words. Let me just reorient us, and then I'm going to add one more quickly. But the term gospel, if I was to ask each of us in this room, whether you're Christian or not, you would probably have some idea of what this term meant or means. But we'd have a little bit of a variation. Most of it would be very spiritual and very personal and maybe a little bit individualistic. But gospel in its context is very politically subversive. And it was used regularly as political propaganda to announce the birth of Roman emperors that was, that would change the lives of everyone in that region. And heralds or evangelists were then tasked to go and tell people the gospel. There's a new Caesar in town. There's a new ruler and your life is about to change. And so Mark attaches this term gospel to this outlaw rebel rabbi that Rome crucified. And it's very seditious. It's very politically loaded and subversive. And he uses the term arche, which is a Greek word, which in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament that Mark would have had access to, it's the word that comes up in the beginning in Genesis 1. And what he is saying, friends, is that Because of the advent of Jesus, we are actually not bound to repeat the cycles of earthly politics forever. We are not limited to the two-year cycle of new promises made and then broken. That Jesus is actually a recapitulation of history itself. That something new is happening, something radical, that everything that God began in the original creation story, is now being relaunched, restarted, recapitulated in the person of Jesus. And then we looked at this term, wilderness. It's a very intentional term as well. And it's given towards the religious establishment because Jesus launches this new beginning not from the seats of power, He goes to the temple, but that's not where he gathers his disciples. He doesn't use the conventions of normal political discourse, but he comes from the margins, and he takes people to the margins. He goes to the wilderness, to the disinherited. And this is where the sex pistols came from. And this was their sort of orientation, that they weren't just reworking old pop standards and putting them in a new key, setting them to a new time signature. But no, they wanted to shock the system. They wanted just to surprise people for the sake of surprise. They wanted to do something different that people couldn't ignore. And so they come and they thumb thumb their noses at musical convention and at polite society. They can barely play their instruments, and they're visually shocking to Britain in the late 70s. 
And on the Queen of England's silver jubilee, they rent a boat and put a big sign on it so that they can call her a fascist moron. People noticed. And maybe you disagreed with their whole platform, but they were radical and they were committed to what they believed. But that's not very nice, is it? But remember, Jesus often called people, people's na- people names as well. He called King Herod a fox, which is not sly and cunning. It's a very ugly term. Basically, he's calling him impotent and a pretender. He calls the Pharisees, the religious leaders, vipers and children of the devil. To a religious system that was organized around this temple, and had, some, had developed over hundreds of years some very exclusionary practices. Jesus comes from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. He comes from Podunksville. And he calls his disciples not from the temple, but into the wilderness with him. And he goes there not to raise an army, but he goes to be tempted. And now let's look at Repentance. There's this great line in The Princess Bride about the term inconceivable, and this character keeps saying it because things that he can't believe are happening keep, keeps happening, and he says, inconceivable, and finally, Inigo Montoya, after hearing that so many times, looks at him and says, you keep using this word, but I do not think it means what you think it means, and I think that that needs to be our approach sometimes with the Bible is that we keep using words, but maybe we don't understand what they actually mean. And I don't mean to imply that you all have to go to seminary in order to learn how to understand the Bible. In large scope, anyone can sit down and read it and understand the basic message. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew. Nor do I want to become tedious that every Sunday morning is an exercise of just saying, well, you probably think this, but it really means that. But we are beholden to certain patterns of exegesis and inheriting theology that may not be as connected to what the Bible says as we think it is. And often words like repentance, which we have in our minds, likely, if you've grown up in church in the West, a very kind of individualistic, very spiritualized understanding of it, that it's repenting of kind of the ways that we've gone awry morally. It's repenting of personal moral choices, and it certainly includes that. But the original readers would have heard repentance in a little bit different way. Primarily, if not exclusively, they would have heard repentance in political, economic, social terms. But what's happened is we've sort of tamed this term a little bit where repentance is more turning from your private moral lapses. But think about the people who repent in this story. Think about the people who are messaging this repentance. John the Baptist is beheaded. Most of the disciples give up their income, give up their profession, and follow Jesus around many of which later are executed. Jesus, the one that comes bringing this message to invite you to repentance, 
He is crucified. Herod and Caesar, frankly, don't give a flip about people's private spiritual lives. Certainly not in a place like Galilee. Certainly not in Nazareth. Repentance gets people killed. Repentance, as Mark is talking about, gets people beheaded by the religious and political establishment. At least as Mark is using it here, repenting is a very subversive act, and it's threatening to the empire. It's threatening to the way things are. It involves, you see, a social a renunciation of social obligation to the values and the structures of society as it then existed for them. But now we need to think about what does that mean for you and I? This is an extraordinarily punk thing to do, to repent, to renounce our social obligation to the structures and the values that we have inherited from sometimes very corrupt systems. And that's why we've been using punk as kind of a way into the gospel that gives us a fresh perspective, that opens a window for us. The Sex Pistols come and use music to say, I'm done. I'm done with this system as it exists. I'm done with conventional music. I'm done with monarchy that seems so removed from my daily life and so insulated from the problems of the lower class and blue class workers. I'm done with these, pol- these stifling political structures. I'm done with British niceness. I'm done with your morality and your dress codes. They kick themselves out of the mainstream. And friends, in this baptism, in the middle of nowhere, By this disrespected leader, John, Jesus is kicking himself out of the mainstream. He's aligning himself with this rogue punk order that has aligned itself against the forces of empire. He's sort of burning his draft card. He'll never get a bust, a marble bust in City Hall. He'll be crucified instead outside the gates of the city with a bunch of rogues and outlaws and sinners with the deplorables. But we have to realize that this is more than just political theater. It's more than just a play to watch because what Mark is writing this down for, the reason is to invite the people, the readers, into this play that they take up the role of an actor, that they put themselves at risk. And he wants us to go there too. He wants us to become characters in this play. And friends, we don't see the face of Jesus in the abstract poor. We see the face of Jesus in the real poor, in the actual poor people whose lives are marked by violence and by abuse and by addiction and by hunger, those lives that are lived right in the shadow of the American dream that promises that if you work hard enough, then you can make it. 
Repentance, friends, includes the forsaking of personal sin. And we need to reckon with that, reckon with the ways that we live our personal lives apart from God and away from God. It includes that. But as Mark would tell it, repenting and believing the good news means turning from a life of privilege and holding on to that privilege at all costs. It means turning away from a life of me-centeredness in order to bring justice to those on the margins, to those in the wilderness. That's where Jesus goes. And there's a reason that you are here this morning hearing this particular sermon. There's a reason, if you call in town home, that you're here this morning. There's a reason that you're in this church, in this neighborhood, that every Sunday at least you are in close proximity to lives that are lived on the margins, lives of incredible pain and suffering. There's a reason you're hearing this message now. And I want to encourage you, be discontent with the way things are. Be disgruntled. Be a little punk about the way things are. Don't stand for it. Because the gospel has ushered in a completely new way to live, and it hasn't completely reorganized everything. But what it's meant to do is to radicalize local populations of people who love Jesus and want to go to the wilderness with him. That's the plan. Jesus has no better plan than you and me here this morning. And that's kind of scary. But be disgruntled, be discontent, be skeptical to the idea that you're going to find real fulfillment in working hard for 45 years only so that you can take it easy for the last five. Is that going to fulfill you? Save for retirement. Leave a little something for your kids. These are things that the Bible affirms. But maybe, maybe start to ask, how am I beholden to an American dream that in some ways can create nightmares for the poor and the disenfranchised? How do I contribute to that system? How am I implicated in my lifestyle choices, my purchasing, my ambitions in life? How does my consumption, my practices of gating my personal wealth from other people, how does that contribute to a system that oftentimes is built on the backs of the poor? And how do they ultimately impoverish me, us? How does this way of life keep me insulated from the people that Jesus died next to? What if instead of just trying to hit that magic number for a comfortable retirement, what if you chose to have just a little bit less? You might have a little bit less money, but maybe you would have more stories to tell, more stories to tell your grandchildren about orphans and widows and the poor and the aliens that you're life intersected with in a meaningful way? What if that was more of your ambition? What if, in fact, those people told your story? 
What if every salary increase wasn't necessarily memorialized by an increase in our lifestyle or moving into a more homogenous neighborhood than the one we live in now? Friends, not everyone is called to live in the danger zone. Not everyone is called to go do some impossible mission in the middle of nowhere overseas. Not everyone is called to live on the front lines where you're stepping over hypodermic needles every morning to get to work. But it can and it should be a part of all of our lives. And so I want to ask you just in conclusion, what gifts, what talents, what passions, what possessions that do you have that you can leverage for God's kingdom instead of your own? What are the things that you're good at? What are the things that people say about you that say, I wish I thought like that or I wish I could do that? What if God is putting his finger on those particular things and saying, could you leverage that for the people that live outside the gates? Are the people that sit next to you in the pew? What if your mind was captivated by bringing just a little bit of peace, little piece of God's healing into the world that you inhabit? Even asking these questions is sort of punking the system. It's punking the system because it ex- the system expects you to commodify and monetize everything that you have, every gift, passion, talent for yourself and building your kingdom. But friends, Jesus has the riches of heaven. He wears a robe and he sits on the throne and he sits in unbelievable comfort next to his father. And yet he gives it up to come for each of us. And he comes and he dies on a cross for us. And friends, the more that you begin to memorialize that in your life, begin to personalize that, walking across the street to your neighbor, taking a little bit more time on Sunday morning to maybe meet with someone that finds their way into this community or maybe stays outside, that becomes a little bit more realistic. And it doesn't become something that you just barely tolerate. It becomes something you look forward to. Because it's in those people that you get to see the face of Jesus and how much he loves you and what he's done for you. Let's pray. Father, would you lead us? Would you help us to see our wealth, not with guilt or shame, but with opportunity? Lord, I pray that you would be with those in this room for whom wealth seems like such a foreign concept those who are struggling to make ends meet, those who are on the verge of being kicked out of their apartment or lose their job or not be able to provide food for their children. God, I pray that you would meet us all wherever we are and help us to remember the, the widow who gave everything she had that was insignificant in the eyes of the world, but that you put your blessing upon. Help us to think like that. Lord, help us to love you more than our stuff and love the people that you care for. In Jesus' name, amen.